the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, enough with the wild imagining. The UN wants you to get a license for that thought. Mass market paperback flocks fill the sky, exhibiting emergent sapient behavior and nesting in those funny square-shaped cliffs. Plus part seven of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to Michael Z. Williamson about his first novel, Freehold. Due to several factors, Freehold came out as a mass market paperback original and never had a hardcover until now. Freehold in a new signed limited hardcover edition is now available at booksellers everywhere. Indeed, signed by Michael Z. Williamson. Freehold is an interesting book. You'll be able to tell from my interview that I think it's a really good novel with profundity and depth to it. This, along with the libertarian society it depicts, is the reason it's become a touchstone to so many readers, I think. Mike, being the author, has a rather complicated relationship with this, his first novel. It's an interesting discussion, and we'll get to that shortly. Also, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. Hey, Laura, the May mass market paperbacks and omnis are at booksellers everywhere. Yay, May flowers and May books. Yeah. These include Andre Norton's Secret of the Stars, Eric Flinton, Reiki Spores, Boundary Series novel Portal, and House of Steel, The Honorverse Companion by David Weber and the consulting collective known as View uh, 9 Portal is book three in the Boundary series, and it's the finale. It takes place on a moon of Jupiter and is a great deal of hard SF fun. Uh, what about Secret of the Stars, Laura? Uh, Secret of the Stars is two classic Andre Norton novels in one. These are Secret of the Lost Race, in which a man hunted across the stars turns around and fights back against his pursuers on a wild and dangerous planet, and Star Hunter, another dangerous planet story, in which a man leading a safari has to face both the planet's killer fauna and the mysterious survivor of a spaceship crash who is menacing indeed. Menacing indeed. Finally, House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion, contains an all-new David Weber novella set in the pre-honor days of the Honorverse, and a plethora of incredible and detailed information on the Honorverse, of course, which is, if you don't know, the setting for David Weber's Honor Harrington novels. Yep, many podcast listeners know that hardcovers, original trade paperbacks, and Omni editions here at Bain almost always get a mass-market paperback edition uh, roughly about a year after they're first published, more or less. So now that the Bain Free Radio Hour is over a year old, we have some great interviews available with authors discussing these very books. We do. I'd encourage you all to listen to some of these before or after you get the paperbacks. We have an interview with Bue Nine, creators of The Honorverse Companion, from May 10th of last year. We interviewed Eric and Reich on Portal for the May 17th show. And we have a great Andre Norton roundtable we did with Eric Flint, David Drake, Sharon Lee, and Steve Miller on August the 30th, 2013. And these are all available on the Bain.com website via mm -hmm. your podcast subscription and using the new Android app or mobile site on your mobile devices, too. That's right. The Bain app has arrived for Android devices and the Bain mobile site for both Android and iOS devices. So how do we get to the mobile site on a browser? Go to BainEbooks.com and it will detect if you're on a mobile device and ask if you want to go to the Bain mobile site. Say yes and there you are. So we'll be talking about that lots more. Check out these podcasts and check out these great books. They're all now in mass market paperback. Sweet. I want to welcome Michael Z. Williamson to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Michael Z. Williamson is the author of eight novels and now a short story collection for Bain. Mike's first Bain novel was Freehold, which we'll get to in a moment, which is the subject of our podcast here. Mike has also collaborated with John Ringo on Pauline War novel Hero. 
His solo novels are set in the universe of Freehold, either in its future or past. These include Contact with Chaos, The Weapon, Rogue, Better to Beg Forgiveness, Do Unto Others, and When Diplomacy Fails. He is also the author of short fiction and nonfiction collection Tour of Duty. Mike's first novel, Freehold, appeared as a mass-market paperback original back in 2004. It was a surprise hit at Bain and went into additional printings. It's a book that is a reference point for many readers in the same way that, say, Moby Dick or Atlas Shrugged is for some. To mark the 10th anniversary of its publication, Bain is putting Freehold in a signed, limited, hardcover edition. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Freehold is an interesting and complex novel. It's fairly long. It doesn't move at breakneck speed until we get well into it, and then it takes off. It has philosophy in it, particularly political philosophy, as well as a big dollop of thinking about personal ethics. Mainly, it's the coming-of-age story of Kendra Pacelli as she moves from being a woman pretty much drifting through life at the start of the book to a highly trained soldier who has been through hell and back by the conclusion. Freehold first appeared as a mass-market paperback in 2004, so this year marks the 10th anniversary. Jim Bain bought the book, and that's an interesting tale in itself. Can you tell us how that came about, Mike? Uh, I'd been hanging out on uh, Bain's bar and got into a lot of arguments with people, which I'm prone to do, and several cases where someone and I were vociferously agreeing with each other, but I always try to make my writing... Uh, clear, concise, my grammar good, and I'd commented that I'd been working on short stories and constantly getting rejected, and to be fair, a lot of them really weren't that good back then. But uh, Jim said, well, send me one chapter of something you're working on, and I'll take a look at it. I sent him a chapter, and he made a couple of suggestions, and I took them. He's good at what he was good at what he did, and then I sent him another chapter and another chapter, and then he said send him the whole book, and he complained about some parts, and I rewrote those, and then eventually he sent me a late night note saying he would buy it. Uh, it was supposed to be in hardcover, but I think they had some scheduling issues, and it actually ran over the contracted publication date. And the only way they could get it out uh, at the time was mass market paperback. And, yeah, the first printing sold out in three weeks, which obviously delighted me. I logged on to Amazon one morning, and it said, you know, not available at this time and available in three to four weeks. And I emailed the office and asked them, you know, is, is there a problem? They said, no, there's no problem at all. No problem at all because we had to go back to uh, to to make uh, to another printing and it's right. and it stayed in print and been a good uh, seller for us ever since. Um, what is uh, how long did it take you to write? How long did this process with Jim go on? By the way, that was about nine months. It's oh um, yeah, I, I, he asked for the chapter. He got back to me within a day or two, and then. Um, David Weber had a whole bunch of stuff that was coming out huge at the time. So he wound up spending a lot of time on that, obviously. And I'm not going to blame him for that. Uh, so contact was sporadic, and a lot of the time he'd just say, real soon now, and eventually it was just RSN. <laughs> Periodic reminders. Yeah. <clears throat> it took me four years of winters to write it. And... Uh, then nine months of discussing with uh, Jim, and then they got scheduled. Can you um, can you set up the political and cultural background of the story? I know you're a, you're an immigrant to America, and yeah, I'm from Britain originally, and I lived several years in Canada as well. And Kendra is also an immigrant uh, in the book. A lot of people refer to it as uh, a socialist Earth. It's actually a, a very fascist Earth. The uh, uh, the similarities between the two: the government's strong controls means of production. But there's more and more political leverage against corporations and vice versa until they basically become indistinguishable. And, you know, it's, I wouldn't, it's hard to do it, compare it to any existing system, but they've got cameras all over the place, they track people, and of course there's complications of sheer numbers. 
that. You, you can have the information available, but actually researching it and finding where someone is takes a conscious effort. So there is a certain amount of anonymity. But if they decide they're looking for something, they can they can find it. Uh, they've got a strong um, public aid system and social welfare and such. And you know, there's positives to those, but there's also the negatives that everybody is basically part of this huge system, and you're required to participate and contribute, and you know, they're not happy if you're not doing your part. And you have to so when she, you have to register for everything, get a license for everything. I picked up bits and pieces here and there from different societies, you know, stuff that people thought was a good idea at the time. Uh, it was Holland, I believe, for a while. If you wanted to open a bike shop, you had to have basically an associate's degree in bicycle repair. You didn't have the proper certification that you couldn't do the job, regardless of any talent or ability. Or, and then, you know, licensing. And I, I've owned a small business. I, I had six employees. It's it's great that they have unemployment and uh, disability and all that. But there were times when my employees were making more money than I did at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, you know, it it's, doesn't really hinder multi-billion dollar corporations, but it can be a, a real pain in the ass for a little guy who just wants to operate a store. And you know, obviously there's, there's big pictures, there's small pictures, there's individuals, but a lot of this stuff stacks up. And the more you have, the more the individual and, and the small owner suffer at the hands of the uh, the big ones. Yeah. And there's political corruption, and there's not very many corrective uh, corrective um, mechanisms in society if, if the guys at the top get out of control which or, or get out of hand and get into criminal activities, which is what happens at the beginning of Freehold, and Kendra is the victim of this. Well, first they've got to be caught, and then there's got to be a system that both cares to do something and does do something. And, you know, just look at the newspapers well, or the web these days. There's a whole lot of uh, companies who do things wrong for a long time before they finally get caught, and often it's because of changing politics, uh, not because of any particular care on anyone's part. Um, yeah, there was uh, – and I actually wrote this before any of the stuff in the, uh, the Iraq war because this stuff happens constantly – uh, they have a low-scale war going on. There's a huge amount of embezzlement. Somebody's raking in a bunch of money, and when it falls apart, they start pointing fingers, and she's one of the many people who got pointed. And they're willing to you know, sacrifice as many peons as it takes to make the problem look as if it's gone away without actually doing anything. So she flees Earth. She ends up on Grayna. Um, Grayna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, it, either way. is it a what do they call freehold? Is it a is it just called freehold the the society or it's not a republic? I, um, I would call it a, a limited meritocracy. Uh, you know they have a constitution. They have a certain amount of uh, control over uh, national well, national mechanisms, but everything else is pretty much. Come as you are. This is completely opposite from Earth, and she finds herself in a completely different cultural situation as a result. A lot of nice vignettes of what a libertarian-based political system might look like in practice, I think, here. There's things you can't do with a libertarian system. Um, you know, For example, who's going to plow your streets if you don't have somebody organized to do that? Now, obviously, a neighborhood can get together and pool resources, or in a business neighborhood likely several of the bigger businesses will go ahead and front the money to do so, you know, which basically makes it a freelance tax rather than taking money from everybody, the ones who have the means, cough it up. And they do that simply because they want access to their business, and anyone else who's in the area is along for the ride to a certain extent. But you know, they do have national infrastructure for things like air traffic control, immigration, national defense. They just don't have any of the social stuff that has become common these days. 
And that came up in, in that universe. It came about because they started out as a colony planet. You know, they had more important things to worry about than social networks. And then when they got wealthier and more advanced, they just decided to continue the way they were. It's entirely possible in the future of the universe they'll pick up things like that. But uh, at this point in it, it's sort of half frontier and half civilized modern society. And some of that was from living in Canada because I live near Toronto, but I could drive 100 miles and I'd be in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And I think close to half of it's in the in the uh, southern Ontario Peninsula. So there's several large cities. There's some settlements around them, and then most of the planet is empty wilderness. And likewise with the orbital habitats, there's three or four that are occupied and are major trade centers. And then everything else is whatever it is. The cities, um, even the cities operate as, on a contract basis, between the citizens. Civic services, yeah. So this is how much money we've got, this is how we're going to spend it, and these are the services we're going to contract this year. And it's a heavily armed society as well. I, I love the fact that people, and particularly women, wore firearms decorated um, <laughs> in the way people like decorate their cell phones these days. That's... Um... And as far that's common in many societies as far as knives. The, the, the sheaths are elaborately decorated and the, the blades are fairly plain. Um, I live in an area where a lot of people uh, go armed and you know, it depends on what the weather is and what you're wearing, which gun and which holster you carry. You know, if you've got a coat on, you can wear just about anything and it's not a problem. If you're trying to be discreet when it gets to hot weather, you've got to have something you can fit in your pocket. So, yeah, there's... There, there's fashion involved in it. The freehold is really the embodiment of the, that saying, an armed society is a polite society. Um, it's my experience. People who are um, trained with weapons are cautious around them. Uh, it's the ones who are untrained who are the loose cannons, you know, people who no one ever accidentally shoots themselves cleaning a gun. It's the first thing you do to clean it is unload it. Mm -hmm. If someone says that, it means they were screwing around with a gun. And they don't want to admit they were screwing around with a gun. Uh, but, you know, there, I have a couple of altercations in the uh, book. I've read books where it's an armed society and everyone is completely rational all the time and sits down and discusses everything over drinks like men. And that doesn't happen in the real world. There's always an idiot. There's always some jackass. And there's always a bully. You have some jackasses and bullies. You have some jackasses and bullies show up as uh, as forced immigrants in the middle of the book. That's kind of a, yeah, a I, people have criticized it as being a uh, utopia, and I wasn't trying to write a utopia, and I don't get the impression it is a utopia. So it could be that they were looking for something that they wanted to be there that I didn't write. Yeah. Well, it, what it seems to me is that um, it's it's. It's so well imagined and realized that um, it's people that have libertarian bent. Um, it's the first, it's a it's something they could really imagine themselves living in, rather than some rather than being a utopia. It, it feels real. I mean, this is a well written novel. I it's, think I'm a better writer now. I mean, mm -hmm. it's got. I like what I do, but I would not try to write something like that these days. Yeah. Well, it, maybe it's a, it's the book you could only write one of. But um, it, I'm certainly glad yeah. you did. It's a great first novel, and it's certainly—I think it's a—it's it's a wonderful standalone novel of science fiction that that that's up there with a lot of them. Um, whether or not uh, you know it, it might have some uh, some issues with areas of the writing, but I think that it it is something of a classic and might might become one in the field over time. I you know we're putting out the second edition in hardcover with um signed sheets in it so that says something about the resiliency of this this book. So you take Kendra into the, after she settles in and there's a good section of her settling in and where she's the outsider we get to see the society through her eyes which is very fun. And then you take her into the military. This seems like your idea of your veteran and a, a you were in a long time, um, of the kind of military force you might have liked to have seen. Uh, is that fair? Yeah, I, I took a lot of the the best things I saw 
in the military. You know, it varies by unit. It varies by time frame and politics. You know, a lot of factors come into play. I was in, in units that operated very much like the ones I described. Uh, very professional, very organized. And of course, I was in some others where either there was some toady up above ruining it for everybody underneath or just gross incompetence or negligence. Uh, it, you know, anything with human beings is going to have a, a cross section. So I tried to select more towards one end than the other. Yeah, they still got some interpersonal conflicts, some budgetary issues. Uh, but you know, I went looking for you know what would be a good military. And of course, it's got my biases in it. Everybody is 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 sort of co-qualified for logistics and operations, right? Because they're small. Um, well, they're very selective because they, you know, it's a small military. They don't have a huge budget anyway, and they try to choose the best candidates they can they can get. Although, depending on circumstances, they'll take what they have available. Um, but they want everybody to have as much training qualifications as possible. But if you look at what modern American soldiers know versus what they knew a hundred years ago. You know, it, it's it's an ongoing trend. Um, you know, troops these days have tremendously more training than was given to anyone who deployed in World War One. So, and I expect that trend to continue. It, it doesn't any field. As we get more knowledge, there's more that has to be learned. There's a lot of basic training sequences in books and movies, but um, this one feels gritty and real as if um, somebody that's been there and done that has written it. But she's not the same Earth girl when she comes out of basic, is she? Can, can we talk about Kendra a little bit, her character? Well, yeah, she was independent enough that when things went south on Earth, she knew she had to get out and got out, uh, got herself established and knew lots of cultural um, problems adapting to a different society. And any immigrant knows what that's like. You know, words don't mean the same things. Uh, people don't have the same views. Um, the example I've been using recently, there's been a lot of discussion on race issues. You know, In the U.S., the 60s and 70s, there was Vietnam, and there was all kinds of race issues. I was in England. Uh, well, the big issue at the time was violence in Northern Ireland. So, and regardless of how old someone is, that's what that era represents to them in the U.S. and what it represents to someone in Britain. Mm -hmm. So I, I have completely different cultural background than anyone here on that subject. So she gets settled in. Uh, she learns to adapt. And then due to the obviously pending war that everybody knows is coming. Uh, there's uh, economic downturn, and they wind up canceling her contract and cutting her loose. Um, knowing that she's a veteran and did enjoy what she did, her friends take her to a recruiter, and she enlists. She came to Freehold uh, after having served in the Earth military, and that's a great contrast in the book as well. Um, the completely different military cultures of the UN-based Earth military. And that of freehold. And a lot of uh, predominantly American civilians in reviews, you know, you know, talk about how one's so competent and one's so incompetent. And I, I gather they've never actually seen any of the various world's militaries. I, I, would, I would not say, you know, the, the, the way I sum it up, the U.S. doesn't have a competent military, it just has the least incompetent military. Anytime <laughs> you get tens of thousands of people together, with all these different systems and interactions and then throw them at something uh, chaotic, it's going to be a mess. That, that's all there is to it. And if you, but you compare the different strategic doctrines of you know the U.S. versus the British versus the Israelis versus the Soviets versus most third world countries, and they all have cultural backgrounds, different approaches, different leadership dynamics. Well, the, and the UN forces have the numbers, and there's a lot more people on Earth than there are is on Gray and 
Um, and in the, the final third of the book, and I, this is not a spoiler, I think, because we see it coming from the start of the novel, Freehold Goes to War, um, and it's against an opponent with numbers and this technological advantage. This really seemed prescient. I mean, you must have written this. You wrote this before all the Gulf War stuff, for one. But these kind of guerrilla tactics um, are things we've seen a lot of in, in recent times. What's Kendra's task during this portion of the story? Having been in logistics, she's uh, aware enough that what they've got to do is cut the invading force off from their resupply and, and uh, support. You know, they're fighting at the end of a several light year long chain having to bring everything in that's essential through uh through the jump points or they have to acquire it locally, which requires a certain amount of cooperation from the locals, whether from necessity or desire. Uh you know, the numbers are, are less important than the ability to supply and move the troops. You know, if you blow stuff up, they'll replace it. But if you can disillusion them, cut off their food, cut off their uh, their supplies, you, know, you both uh, ruin their morale and make it harder for them to do anything because they're busy trying to keep their own position rather than take yours. So raid behind the lines, as it were, and, and, and take out the the logistics and the morale-building stuff as much as possible. Yeah, the technology is not too disparate between them. Uh, it's just that one side has a hundred times the resources of the other. Um, you know, that that there is going to dictate how you fight the war. You can't go one on one against uh, an enemy that size and hope to do anything. It's a lot of raiding, a lot of skulking around, a lot of um, sniping, ambushing, you know, guerrilla raids. And things don't always go well. For uh, Kendra, either she gets um, and and others in the story. I mean, things go wrong. If you put people under stress like that, and you get the best of them, and you get the worst of them, both. And as far as people go, and you know, people get discouraged, they get burned out, they get angry, they get burned by fire bushes. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible not to. Uh, well, I would say it's impossible. There's very few people who come out of a war without some kind of stress. Well, she, I, I worry about the ones who don't. Uh, yeah. Well, she turned the several times. She turns the situation around. She's just a, she's a very appealing character, and and we feel for her when she's going through these things. Mm -hmm. So, in addition to the political and military aspects of Freehold, there's there's sex in there, um, and a good deal of it, uh, and a lot of walking around naked too <laughs> in the story. I picked bits and pieces from uh, ancient Roman Japan. I mean, the, the summers on this planet are warmer than here. And um, lots of places in, in Europe are very casual about nudity. So, you know, Americans find it a little off-putting, but for large chunks of the world, co-ed bathrooms are common, nude beaches are common. It's, it's not a huge deal. And their summer climate in this is conducive to it. So people are very casual about it. And uh, as, as far as sex, I think the, the trend with better control of diseases and better birth control, there's less need for sex to be as restrained as it was. And that's obviously a trend we've seen um, pretty much worldwide, you know, where people have freedom and opportunity and conducive climate. There's no reason for them not to be casual about nudity and sex. Yeah. Pair bonding still exists there and, and marriages as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there's some interesting relationships between uh, fathers and daughters as well. I mean, they don't have sex, but they are very casual about their, mm -hmm. not casual, but they're they're open about what their daughters might be doing. That was mentioned in Rogue, I believe. Um, I think I might have mentioned in, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I wrote that. 16 years ago now. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the supporting characters is a model, actress, and high-end escort, and is fairly open about her job with friends and family. But I, I've met people who are like that in this society. You know, sure. You accept what your family does for a living. It's just business. Yeah. It's It seems to be taking 
a lot of trends we see now and, and extrapolating them. What if these trends developed into a society where there's not a lot of uh, constraints and rules on, on behavior except not to hurt someone else? So Heinlein influences abound in freehold, I think, uh, but so do influences from mainstream and classic novelists. I mean, I don't know if you're a Theodore Dreeser uh, reader, but he comes to mind. It, it reminded me of, of some of his uh, his big old novels. <laughs> um, what are some of your influences? I actually haven't read any of his stuff. Um, yeah, Heinlein, Heinlein Juveniles were the first science fiction I read that's become into sci-fi. Uh, I, I still like those. They, they read well even as an adult, even decades later, because um, he focused more on people rather than any particular current social matter at the time or anything overly. I mean, the technical stuff is in there and is outdated, but it doesn't affect the story because the universe is consistent. Um, a big fan of Larry Nivens. Uh, he, he creates some amazingly huge universes to play in. Um, as far as non-sci-fi, I like um, uh, Kipling, uh, Peter Hathaway Capstick stories of hunting and trapping and tracking in Africa. Uh, very vivid prose. Um, I grew up reading everything I could get my hands on. Uh, I've, I prefer sci-fi, but I've read westerns. I've read uh, fantasy, uh, read mysteries, and then nonfiction. In the introduction, um, you talk about finding Bane books on the racks uh, at um, PXs. I, I was at uh, technical school at uh, Shepard Air Force Base and went into the the Exchange Mini Mart, and there was a rack of books, and there was some Jerry Purnell and some Larry Niven and some Dean Ng and some other stuff, and I just and there was um, New Destinies, Jim Bain's quarterly paperback magazine. Back then, yeah. And I just grabbed the whole stack and went back and you know read them and had to wait for the next month for more releases. And I think it was like the second or third month I realized, it's like, oh, this is Bane. They keep putting out a lot of stuff I like, so I'll have to look for that. And then made a point of you know, looting the racks bare every month uh, at my permanent duty station as well. So what are you working on now? Um, working on a time travel story called A Long Time Until Now. Uh, I, I love the title. I'm usually not very good with titles. This one came to me, but I'm not sure what I'll do for a sequel title if I do one. Um, U.S. Army unit on patrol, hears a loud bang, winds up somewhere they can't identify, and after a while of plodding around in the wilderness, finds out they're in the Paleolithic. So there's mixed bag of 10 troops, one, one Navy, one Air Force, the rest Army, some are active duty, a couple of reservists. Uh, they've got two MRAPs, the stuff they're carrying, and the contents of the trucks. And a while later, they find out there's also some Neolithic people who've been displaced into the Paleolithic, uh, some Romans, and a small contingent of East Indian musketeers. <laughs> um, Man, that sounds there's fun. There's interplay between the groups. You know, they're, they're trying not to waste ammunition, they're trying not to waste resources, and they're trying not to be overly overbearing because they know their resources are finite. But... Uh, you know, when someone shows up to attack you, you've got to you know, fight accordingly. And there's, so there's some diplomacy involved, uh, some combats. There's herds of animals all over the place. There's predators. And the big problem they're facing is, is people. They've got 10 people. Uh, the officer's an engineer. And I know from experience, if you had a couple of platoons or a company of engineers, even without equipment, you could very quickly get a lot of stuff built. Uh, doing it with only 10 people when you've got to have somebody on watch constantly against animals and intruders uh, really complicates things. They've got to get a palisade up. They've got to get drinking water. They've got to have a latrine. They've got to have food supplies. They're, they're trying to build an entire microcosmic society. And then there's the, the psychological and social aspects that, as far as they know, they're never going home. They don't know how they got there. They don't know what they can do about it. And eventually, you know, the, the soap, the shampoo, the bullets, everything is going to run out, 
and they're going to have to adapt to living in a Paleolithic world. It's taking a lot longer to write than I originally hoped. I, I keep writing and it keeps getting longer because each character has got their view, each aspect of the world has its has its input. Well, it sounds like you you have a not an ambivalent relationship with this your first novel, but perhaps with people who do take it as a model for living. Um, how do you see Freehold now that you're ten years away from its publication and I guess fifteen from its writing almost? I, I wouldn't have written it as it's not really one story, and it wouldn't really work split up as three stories. It's a, it's a first novel. I was exploring. I was trying something out. And it, it worked well enough. Um, my writing style has evolved and constantly is. I've, there's flaws I had that I've tried to fix. I've probably developed some others in the meantime. Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm grateful that people like it a lot. On the other hand, like that was 15 years ago, and I, I'm a better writer now. There are some first novel problems, but I have to say it's a meaty, complete novel, and it's a wonderful reading experience. Um, the book is the signed limited edition of Freehold by Michael Z. Williamson. It's now available for the first time in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. And you signed all of those, didn't you, Mike? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and I, after a while of signing, I uh, noticed that my W turns into an E, and then I realized it's time to stop signing. <laughs> Uh, Start again. That, there, that was an entire cube of signed sheets. Yeah, and they're they're all worked into the book, and they're right there at the at the beginning when you get this edition. And it has a, a great introduction where you do a retrospective on on the time, and you tell us a lot of what you told us today, and even more. Um, so thank you very much for being with us, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now here is part seven of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically transformed. A handful of people from all walks of life have been visited with special magical talents. These people are called actives. They come with different abilities. Some are brutes, able to wield impossible strength. There are finders who can locate just about anything or anyone given time. There are summoners, healers, torches, weathermen, and heavies, those who can manipulate gravity itself. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. One man who can confront that power, when it's been twisted to the wrong side of good and evil, is Jake Sullivan. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. And he's a private investigator in this dark and dangerous world. Jake has gotten a request he can't refuse from J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation. Track down active brute Delilah Jones. After a fight for his life on a dirigible high above the earth, Jake figures that even though he didn't haul in Delilah, he's done his bit on this particular case. J. Edgar Hoover has other ideas. Here is Bronson Pinchot for Part 7 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 3 As soon as the idea was introduced that all men were equal before God, that world was bound to collapse. Behold the failed America, a culture steeped in rot, their magics used publicly in the streets without control even allowed to the despicable Jew. Adolf Hitler, final Munich speech before his arrest and execution by firing squad, 1929. Chicago, Illinois The paper didn't have much more about the theft of the UBF dirigible. 
There had been a small article about how it was found abandoned in a field in Missouri the day before yesterday, but nothing new today. The headlines were mostly about the upcoming election, and FDR was talking about some new deal which just smelled a little too much like what the Marxists in Europe were shoveling for Sullivan's tastes. A group of his fellow veterans had gathered in Washington as what they were now calling the Bonus Army. Some anarchists were going on trial for something or other, but those assholes were always causing trouble. Besides that, the rest of the front page was about how the Bolsheviks had signed a new pact with the Imperium and the Siberian Cossacks to divide up Manchuria. The embargo was forcing the Japs to use hydrogen in their airships, but other than the inconvenience, they were busy as could be taking over everything in the Eastern Hemisphere. The sports page was still going on about the baseball scandal after the Yankees had been caught illegally using magic to hit more home runs and the boxer he'd put $5 on to win last night had gotten knocked out in the second round. Figures. The door opened. We're ready for you. Sullivan carefully folded the paper, put it back on the table, adjusted his tie, and entered the conference room. So... How are you feeling, Mr. Sullivan? He didn't answer for a long moment. Mostly he was feeling angry. Lied to, cheated, used. And that wasn't even counting the physical injuries he was still recuperating from. His back hurt. Headaches were making it hard to sleep. His right hand still wouldn't close all the way. He had itchy stitches in his leg. And he was fighting a miserable cold. So overall, Jake Sullivan was in a lousy state. But, when the man asking the question was also the man that had the power to put you back in prison, it did bring out a certain level of politeness. Fine, Mr. Hoover, sir. I'm doing fine. He lied. The bandage around his hand gave him an excuse not to shake J. Edgar Hoover's hand. Excellent, the director of the Bureau of Investigation said as his assistant pulled a chair away from the table for Sullivan. It was at the far end of the conference room. Have a seat. We were just discussing your actions in the Jones case. Hoover was a stocky man. His eyes were quick and a little too crafty, and he spoke too well. Sullivan had never liked him and had developed an instinctive distrust from the first time they'd met in Rockville. Purvis looked uncomfortable. His arm was in a thick cast. The fade had broken it in two places with that club. Cowley and the other four agents from that night were also present, as well as a couple members of Hoover's entourage and a gray-haired secretary who was poised to scribble some furious shorthand. He was too much of a professional and a gentleman to speak badly about his superior to somebody like Sullivan, but it was obvious that Purvis didn't like Hoover much. It was understandable. Purvis worked his ass off and had busted some of the most dangerous active criminals there were, but Hoover was always the big hero in all the papers, and now the special agent in charge of Chicago looked real uncomfortable since his boss had felt the need to hop a dirigible and fly all the way here from Washington to get a personal debriefing. Sullivan had sat out in the hall for that part. He wasn't one of them. In fact, he was a convict, a low-class criminal dirtbag. He'd heard how some of these men spoke about him. They thought he was just a dim bulb heavy that they could bring in once in a while to smack around some active hooligan they couldn't handle. Sure, there were a few G's who treated him with respect, like Purvis and Cowley or the treasury guy Ness, but most of the others were openly hostile. From the beaten feel of the Chicago agents, it looked like Hoover had given them a good ass-chewing. We were just telling the director about your bravery, Purvis started to speak, but Hoover scowled hard and Purvis shut his trap. Hoover coughed politely before continuing. These men were impressed by your actions, Mr. Sullivan, but I, on the other hand, am a bit let down. Sullivan raised a single eyebrow. Oh, this ought to be rich. When you were released from Rockville early, you made an agreement that you would assist the government in capturing people like you. And my understanding is that you now wish to stop helping. Do I have that correct, son? 
Sullivan was pretty sure he was about the same age as Hoover, and he didn't cotton to being called son. Yes, sir. That is correct, sir. Hoover didn't like that answer, so he stopped and picked up a piece of paper and began to tap a golden pen on the table in front of him as he pretended to study it. His frown made the other agents shrink a bit. You've been a valuable asset, one which I'm not prepared to lose. With all respect, sir, my agreement with you and the warden was that I would help arrest five active murderers. Sullivan held up his bandaged hand and began to count. Tom McGunn Smith in Philly, Jim McKinley in Kansas City, the Crusher in Hot Springs, the Maplethorpe brothers in Detroit, which should count as two, and Delilah Jones was the last, and I did everything I could to catch her. Hoover nodded. So, a heavy can count. <laughs> I see we've got us a jailhouse lawyer here, gentlemen. The members of Hoover's entourage laughed. The Chicago agents knew better. You want math, Sullivan? I'll give you math. Jones got away, so that makes four. Now Hoover held up his hand, thumb curled in. And you did not manage to arrest the Maplethorpe brothers? Hoover lowered a chunky finger. You gunned them down in the streets in broad daylight. Maybe you're right, they should count as two. He lowered another finger. They didn't leave as much choice, sir, Agent Cowley stated. I was there. They came out shooting and... Hoover glared at the agent. Purvis shook his head angrily. Hoover had ended men's careers for far less than interrupting him. Cowley wisely backed down. Hoover turned back to Sullivan. So by my calculations, that means you owe me three more arrests. The big man's nostrils flared, but he kept his outward cool. That wasn't the agreement. Hoover leaned back in his chair. Tolson. He opened his hand, held it out, and one of the functionaries immediately stepped forward and placed an open folder in it. Thank you. This is your agreement, Mr. Sullivan. Let me educate you for a moment. An agreement is a contract between two men that is legally binding, except that's the rub. You're not a man. You're a convict. So... Hoover pulled out a sheet of white paper, crumpled it into a ball, and tossed it at Sullivan. It fell short and rolled to a stop right in front of him. The agreement says whatever I say, it says. You will help arrest Delilah Jones, and you will do whatever else I tell you to do. Lincoln freed the slaves, but he never said anything about the convicts. Sullivan just sat there, staring at that crumpled piece of typing paper. His anger fed the power in his chest, and he thought about just reaching across the table and spiking Hoover through the floor. Then he could pull the pile of smashed guts and pulverized bones up out of there, launch it through the ceiling, and spray it as a red rain over downtown Chicago. But he didn't, because despite what the jury had said, Jake Sullivan was not a murderer. Sure, he was a killer. He'd lost count of how many lives he'd ended in the war and in fights in Rockville, but he wasn't a murderer. There was a difference. He spoke very slowly. You lied to me. I work for the government, son. <laughs> Deal with it. Hoover pushed away from the table and stood. He addressed the entire room. Carry on, agents, and this time when you let a felon escape, do not let it get in the papers. That will be all. One of his men opened the door and Hoover turned to leave, but Sullivan wasn't done. Hoover. His deep voice reverberated through the room, and there was no mister attached. The crumpled paper floated off the table and hovered, spinning in front of his face. Hoover visibly paled, hesitating in the doorway. It was a well-known fact that the man was terrified of magic. Sullivan slowly enclosed the paper in one big fist and took it away. You lied about Delilah, too. 
I was suspicious that a bunch of actives just happened to know we were going to be there to catch on. I did some checking yesterday. I've got some cop friends in that area, and they say she didn't kill anybody during any bank robberies. That seemed to take Purvis by surprise. Apparently the Chicago agents had been in the dark, too. So who were those dead men in the photographs? Purvis asked. Hoover exchanged glances with the agent named Tolson. The taller man seemed baffled. Apparently they hadn't prepared an answer. Finally Hoover spoke. That's not important. Just know that she murdered them. And the highest levels of government want her caught. Do I make myself clear? Yes, sir. All of the agents answered simultaneously. Sullivan didn't say a word, but inside he was seething. He just squeezed the crumpled contract in his hand, pummeling it with his power as Hoover walked out. When Sullivan finally let go, a hard ball of compressed wood pulp the size of a marble hit the floor and rolled away. That was part seven of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Stephen Long, Laura Haywood Corey, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a constellation of black holes in the shape of the Mossen Nagant rifle used by the Lord of Hosts, or whatever powers that be, to expel Satan from heaven, and, spoiler alert, to win Armageddon, for Michael Z. Williamson, author of the signed limited edition of Freehold. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 